All right, Tom. Um, another question from someone who, a uh, Peter, who sent in by way of MBT Events email, has to do with this same subject, only with a different uh, viewpoint. I understand that Tom's point about after we leave this current physical world, that we get to come back to either continue to evolve or de-evolve. If we are to learn and lower our entropy, then why are we born back into this world uh, without memory and have to start from scratch every time? Um, this has been asked uh, several times before. His point is, my, uh, my question is centered around the actual lessons that we learn. If I had an inkling of some of my past lessons, I may be able to make better choices and move towards growing up without as much difficulty. What is your thought on that? Well, one imagines that that's true, but for the most part, it's really not very true because that's all in your intellect. Growing up isn't about doing, it's about being. So yes, if you had, you know, like if you take a test and you have all the answers to the test, you probably do better in the test if you, if you go into it knowing all the answers or if you know what the problem is. All right, your problem is, is you expressed a lot of anger last time. Oh, I'm glad I know that. Now I won't be angry so much. I'll suppress it. That doesn't help you grow up any. See, that's all at the intellectual level. Suppressing anger makes you more civilized, but it doesn't make you less angry. It just suppresses the expression of the anger. It's not a matter of acting better. It's a matter of being better. And knowing the past things that you've done or not done or done well or done badly doesn't change your being. Your being is how do you make this next choice. When somebody does this to you, somebody calls you an idiot, how do you react to that? Do you get angry? Okay, well, if it makes you angry, that's just how you are at the being level. You have to outgrow it. If you just say, oh, yeah, I remember anger management. That was my problem last time. All right, I'm not going to act angry. I'm going to smile. Then you put on a big grin and you smile at them. And you say, okay, I'm really doing well now. You're not doing well now. You're just acting better. So it doesn't help you. That's the point. What you bring here from your last, from all your lives, is the quality of the person you are. From there on, you get to make choices, and those choices express you at the being level. And having an intellectual knowledge of how you should act rather than acting the way you really are isn't helpful to your growing up. It just seems like it would be. So that's the thing. Um, how do you know what you should be working on? Well, look at what it is that makes you miserable. What makes you unhappy? Where's all the negatives in your life? Well, that's the stuff you're supposed to be working on. You know, if you're an angry person, that's what you're supposed to be working on. You don't have to have some knowledge to tell you that. All you have to do is look at who you, what you are, how you act, and what's negative, what's positive in your life. And if you see that negative stuff, then that's what you need to be working on. You don't need an intellectual, uh, you know, uh, crib sheet that gives you the answer. Oh, anger is what I should be working on. It's not that hard to realize whether you're angry or not. If you're angry, that's something you should be working on because that's a negative. So you don't need that intellectual stuff. It just gets in the way. It gets in, you know, it, it clutters your intellect with all kinds of things so you can you can better game the system. Gaming the system isn't what we're trying to do. We're trying to change ourselves. 
So when you deal with a with a a choice you have to make, just you and the choice, you make it and that represents who you are. Don't make it from the intellect, make it from the core, make it from the being level. That's who you are. If that causes you pain, then you need to grow up, you need to change it. You need to change your environment or you need to do something about it. But that's why we don't come here with intellect intact from the last thing. It doesn't help. It gets in the way. It makes us think we're doing great because now we've stuffed the anger under the rug and uh, we pretend that we don't feel anger anymore. And if you do that enough, you'll actually believe it because you just won't be angry. You'll never express that anger. But you will be stuffing it under the rug all the time and eventually, you know, it'll pop out or you'll have to deal with it later. Until you deal with it and get rid of it, it's still a problem, whether you're expressing it or not. So that's, yeah, I've, I've heard that question a lot of times. I've answered it a lot of times, but it's still very, you know, a very important question that uh, the people have. They want to, they feel like they're, they're at a loss. Here they are, and they don't know what it is they're supposed to be doing. Well, what you're supposed to be doing is, is, is not uh, working off a list of issues. You're supposed to be taking taking stock of who and what you are and growing up. And for that, you don't need somebody to tell you, you know, what you need to be doing. It's obvious. Anything that makes you feel bad or anxious or upset or angry or any of the other negative things, that's what you need to be working on. Well, Tom, um, I can understand that from your point of view. And I did train with Brian Weiss in some past life regression therapy, and I did notice at some of the sessions that people uncovered some things they were struggling really hard with, some things they couldn't uh, find a reason for. And whether it's a real past life or whether something simply uncovered itself from, from the conscious level, from the being level, um, knowing some of the struggles that may have been a past life, in a past life, seemed to have unlocked an understanding that helped them um, deal yes. with some of the issues. So I can see what you mean by not, you know, intellectualizing, knowing, you know, specific details about a past life, but perhaps zeroing in on an issue might help you progress. Uh, what do you think of that? Well, I agree. It's a, that's a, a good um, therapy mode. And Brian Weiss is a therapist, and he helps people uh, get over problems. And he's found that to be an effective tool. Okay, so, but you have to think of it that way. It's an effective tool for him. And he can take people who have some kind of problem, and he can't find any explanation for it. They can't find any explanation for it. It's kind of mystifying. So he does a regression, and you know, uh, they say, oh, sure enough, what, you got bitten by a great big snake. And that's why you have a snake phobia. Well, now they have something to pin it on. Everybody can go, shoot, okay, now I understand it. Now it'll be easier to get over it because I understand it. Okay, now, did they actually get bitten by a big snake, or is that just a convenient way to give them a handle on the problem so they can feel like it's not just insanity. Oh, I see, it was this thing that happened to me. Oh, well, now I can deal with it. Well, it doesn't matter, you see. It really doesn't matter. It's a good therapeutic tool. Again, where it comes from, whether it's objectively a fact or not, is irrelevant. 
It doesn't really matter. But yes, it is good therapy. And now where does that come from? So now you're in a, a hypnotic state. They're taking you back. And you you see this picture of the big snake that grabs you when you're a, you know, a six-year-old or something. It terrifies you. And uh, that was your past life regression. Does that just come from the larger consciousness system? Is that who gave you that picture? Just because they know it'll help you get over this problem? Could be. Or could that be actually a past life you lived and that happened? Could be. Does it matter? No. You see, it just doesn't matter. We have to kind of get over our ego wants to make these things objective. Is it real? Oh, I had this out of body, but, but and it was a lot of fun, but was it real? Well, was it useful? What did you get out of it? See, and if the answer keeps turning up, no, it's not really all that useful, then, you know, do something else. It's not worth your time to do those things just for entertainment. Well, I shouldn't say that. Maybe it is worth your time to do those things for entertainment, but don't uh, expect to get more than entertained if you do. So that's the point. Uh, the system may provide an image that that person finds helpful because in their psychology, it's easier for them to work with something that they can understand intellectually. Otherwise, they don't seem to be able to get a grip on it. And if they can't understand it intellectually, then they can't work with it. As soon as they get an intellectual understanding, it's, oh, is that all? I got scared as a child. All right, I can get over this thing. You see, that's very helpful to them because now they can put it in a context with which they can work. Um, before, they didn't have a context, so it was hard for them to get a hold of it. Good therapy. The therapy is successful. Exactly whether how objective it is is really hard to tell. How do you prove or disprove logically whether that's a fact or not? Well, you don't. It's a, you can believe it, or you can disbelieve it, or you can just use open-minded skepticism and say, well, it works. Great. Let's use it. See? So that's the, that's the thing. I, I think giving up the idea of wanting to make it uh, something you can believe or something you should disbelieve is a problem. Just live gracefully with uncertainty and use what works. Thank you, Tom. I, I think um, we were talking about intellectual uh, information, but I think what, what mm -hmm. I've noticed with a lot of the people who've had successful past life regressions is the emotional content. Um, how can you tell this is real? Um, the emotional content was very strong. Um, that is, I think, one of the things that um, seemed to be of a great help that they could unlock things from this emotional experience. Um, yeah, well, I think emotional experiences and intellectual experiences or whatever, uh, they all, the answer's still all the same. Yes, an emotional experience is very use, can be useful, cannot be useful. If it is, great. But don't obsess over the, how real is it? That's not really important. That's only important to the ego. Only the ego cares how, how real it is. Now, you can, if you get a lot of, in, of information in a past life that is detailed enough that you can look it up, if it happens to be that sort of thing you can look up, well, go look it up. And if you see that it's accurate, then all right. Now you've got some information that says, well, that probably was 
you know, objectively uh, a past life of mine? Probably. Again, you don't know for sure. There's no way to get objective information out of subjective information. You can't just turn one into the other. It's still going to be subjective. It's still possible you got somebody else's lifetime. And the information was all accurate, but how do you prove that that was yours other than that you got it? Well, you're getting the data stream. How can you prove that data stream came from a certain place? You can't. So just live gracefully with uncertainty and use what works, whether it's emotional or not, and let the ego go on trying to make it objective. All right. Thank you, Tom. Um, our next question comes from the MBT forum from Brian on the dream reality. Um, his question is, are the experiences we have in the dream reality frame closer to our MPMR self than they are to our PMR self, avatar? That is, are the experiences closer to the non-physical reality frame self, our self is at the being level, or are they closer to our physical matter reality avatar? Well, um, the question is a little hard to answer because of the way it's set, but let me try to explain that when you're in the dream reality, you operate from the being level. In the dream reality, you are who you are. You're expressing the core of you. You're expressing your being level inside the dream. Often the way dreams are is you just find yourself in some kind of scenario and you have to make choices. You have to decide what to do and who to interact or what, what to say next. You're, you're making choices. And all of that comes right out of the being level. You don't intellectually analyze it. The intellect seems to be sleeping back in the bed and you, you know, with your being level, are out there dreaming. So that's the way, that's the way dreams work. So if you live in your being level in PMR because you really don't have fear and ego and belief and you live out of your being level all the time, then your dream is going to be just like it is here. It's just going to be a different reality and you're going to be the same person in both realities. If you are a person with fear and therefore ego and belief and you are not all that aware of your being level, you live out of your intellect, then your dream is going to be very different than your reality here because it's going to be a being-level-based thing, and here in this reality is more of an intellectual-based interaction. So they could be the same. They could be different. Um, basically, what you do in dreams tends to be all being-level until it goes lucid. Now, when you have a lucid dream, what that means is that your intellect just got turned back on. That's what makes a lucid dream lucid. Your intellect now is back in the driver's seat. But until that happens, if it's just a dream that's not lucid, then you're working out of your being level. That's what makes it so valuable because you can't game the system. You can't cheat. You can't stuff things under the rug. You can't do things because you think it's the right thing to do in a dream. You just act and make choices the way you are. So if you want to have a, a good idea of what's inside at the being level, then pay attention to your dreams. That's you making choices. All right, Tom. The second part of his question, and I think you've partially answered it, is the reason for my apparently enhanced emotional state of mind in the dream reality frame due to the lesser constraints of the dream reality frame and also more direct to our data stream. 
also a more direct connection to our data stream due to the barriers to this ego, fear, beliefs, and expectations being less inhibiting in the dream reality frame. Yes, your, your emotions basically exist in your being level. That's where they are. Your emotions are at the being level. And your dream is at the being level. So the fact that your, your state in the dream tends to be more closely related to your emotions, that's, they're both coming from the same, the same place. We don't intellectually order our emotions either. We don't say, oh, I think I should act angry or I should be happy or I should be sad or whatever. We don't, our emotions just happen. They, they also represent us at the being level, just like we do in the dream. So yeah, he's right. That's, there is a connection. There. Okay, Tom, the next question from the MBT forum is from Chris. I did have a question which has been bugging me for some time now regarding the quality of consciousness required to exist in a state of enlightenment. A couple of definitions would be realizing your true nature, the recognition that there is nothing inside you called the separate self, um, etc. How much does the larger consciousness system actually value that state of mind? Because I have read of many famous spiritual teachers who were reputedly enlightened, yet engaged in alcoholism and various things. Um, is it possible for them to be in that state of no ego, but still be deeply egotistical at a being level? Um, no. Uh that's not, that's an inconsistency. I, for both of those, let me start with the, this idea of enlightenment. There is not this state that you achieve that you suddenly become enlightened. You know, this idea of enlightenment is uh, a label that I suspect some people either made up to describe themselves or others made up to describe, you know, someone else. Uh, that seems like they are more enlightened than the average person, so they they're, so they call them enlightened. They're more uh, they're, they're lower entropy than the average person, so they call them enlightened. But there is no such state that you suddenly pass this barrier. You know, you got a, a an eighty on the on the test, and so now you're enlightened. It's not like a certification. Um, if you have any fear, ego, belief, expectations, all that stuff then you have room to grow. So if we say enlightened as perfect, then there probably are no enlightened beings, and there really probably never will be, and they haven't been, and the system itself is not enlightened, because this is an evolving system. It's constantly growing. Perfect is defining a, an absolute endpoint. This is the endpoint, and in a evolving system, there's always more choices. There's always things to do. There's always um, more applications. So I don't know about you know this, this idea of perfection, where there is absolutely no fear left in you about anything, and none could ever develop. That's probably not the way it is. We're, you know, it's like in physics, we have things that, that uh, you just can't get there. You can get close, but you can't get there. Like absolute zero, or uh, at to infinity, you know that sort of thing. You can approximate it, and in this physical reality, this virtual reality, you know, the speed of light's like that. You can't ever really get there, but you can get close. 
So I'd say enlightenment is sort of like that. We tend to get asymptotic and approach that, perhaps, if we're very, very uh, uh, low entropy people. But I think there's always, um, it always requires effort to stay that way. In other words, you don't get there, get a badge that says enlightened, you know, now you get to wear that around because you, you've uh, got your ticket punched and you're now an enlightened person. It's not like that. If you get rid of all your fear, absolutely, you still have to keep working on that because as soon as you just kick back and say, oh, I'm enlightened now, that's when the ego and that's when the fear and other stuff will start to reoccupy your consciousness. In other words, it's a thing you have to constantly work to maintain. It's not a state that you just get to be in for passing a test. Entropy is like that. Entropy tends, on its own, to grow, to get higher, to increase. The only way to keep it low is to keep working at it. It takes effort. It takes energy. It takes you know, trying to keep that entropy low. So when you give up trying because you're already there, that's when you start the evolving and needing to work on it more. So I believe that's what I mean by asymptotic, that you always have to work on being love. It's something that requires continual effort all the time. It's an entropy reduction. Entropy increases if you don't work at keeping it decreased, if you don't lower on it. So people who claim to be enlightened, those people who say, yes, I am enlightened, it's almost, uh, well, I'll give that, it's a 90% or so sign that they are not. Because if you were enlightened, you wouldn't go around saying, I'm enlightened, because you would understand that it is a continual process of working, and you're still working on it, because you have to work on it, otherwise you will digress, not digress, but regress. You see, so there is no really such state as the state of enlightenment. And uh, those who claim it, to me, that is a, that's a sign that they certainly are not or are unlikely to be because that state really doesn't exist. And I take this word enlightenment to mean really a whole lot lower entropy than most people. And we call that person enlightened. Or I'm more enlightened now than I was 10 years ago. We can use it that way. And uh, so-and-so, you know, Swami somebody, you know, he's enlightened. Well, that must mean that he is a very, very low entropy being. He's full of love and caring and so on. Much more than anybody else I know. So I'll call him enlightened. But you see, that's a very relative term. It's like calling somebody good. You know, you can be in all different kinds of states and get the label of good because it tends to be compared to something else, something that's bad. It's a relative term. Enlightenment is the same, the same way. So now the rest of that, uh, people, uh, alcoholism, had affairs, insulted followers, uh, you know, egotistical. Is it possible to be in that state of enlightenment of no ego but still be deeply egotistical? <laughs> no. It isn't. If you're, if you're in that state and you are loved, then you don't do things that hurt people. You don't do things that are aggravating. Now, you may be hard on a student just to get them to think, like we talked about this uh, 
you know, the dark night of the soul, sometimes the student may need to be hit between the eyes with a two before to get them to see what's going on. So you may tell the student to, you know, go stand in the corner on one foot and clap with one hand until you figure it out. And that may be a really hard thing to tell that student to do. And they may try to do it and fail. And you say, well, that guy's really got a big ego. Maybe not. But that's the only thing that you can do that's, that's not, uh, that doesn't maybe seem to be too caring. Mostly, no. If you are, you know, doing these things, you're insulting people, you're not being a nice person, then you are not very evolved. Now let's talk about evolution in the sense that it, it has lots of different components to it. You may be very evolved in component A and D and not much evolved at all in B and C. So there's lots of different components to growing up. You see, there's the anger component, and we get a lot of that, and there's the caring component, and maybe the compassionate component, and you can see that you may be very caring but about people, but maybe you have still have anger problems. As soon as somebody that you're caring for says something you don't like, you get angry with them, but you still care for them. So you can you grow up, not just this enlightenment isn't one big monolithic thing. It's something that you develop in bits and pieces with your choices, and you can be more enlightened in one area than in another area. And you could be very enlightened in being maybe very empathetic with people, but you still, you know, do things that aren't enlightened. You may be empathetic, but not nice. I have empathy for you, but here, I'm going to slap you anyway. Oh, that hurts me as much as it hurt you. You know, that's very, very empathetic, but it's not necessarily an enlightened person. So I would take this word enlightenment uh, with a grain of salt. It really doesn't mean much. It's a relative word, and uh, it's a trap to people who think that they have, uh, you know, that they should be called an enlightened because they have no ego. Uh, the fact that you want to be called enlightened, I think, tells you that you do have an ego. Otherwise, it wouldn't matter what people called you if you didn't have an ego. You'd have no interest in being called enlightened if you were enlightened, and you certainly wouldn't ask other people to call you that. Um, so. Anyhow, uh, now, uh, if you are, if you act like you have high entropy, you do. It doesn't mean there may be some aspects to you that aren't highly evolved. They might be, but in all, as a whole person, you still have a long way to go. So this idea about, about uh, enlightened people sometimes being really rude and mean and self-centered, they're not so enlightened as... Maybe they or their followers claim. They're just maybe very learned, or maybe they understand it intellectually, but uh, are confusing intellectual understanding with being level understanding. All right, Tom, thank you. Uh, there's another question from Alexander on the MBT Events Forum. I'm sorry, MBT Forum. While doing experiments with my own consciousness, I realize that I tap into energy fields of other people like my girlfriend, and then perceive their emotions and energy blockages. These perceptions are sometimes so strong that I feel weakened myself afterwards. In cases where I succeed in transforming the energy blocks of others, they report to feel better afterwards. 
After these experiences, I feel driven to experiment with this further and develop my own abilities in this area, but I'm unsure on how to proceed. Do you have any advice? Yes, uh, what you're doing is developing tools to help other people with issues that they have. And yes, it's a good idea. Um, if you feel driven to experiment with it further, then experiment with it further. Uh, it's a good exercise. In the process of experimenting, you will learn things. You will spend more hours in meditation. You will uh, uh, you know, be caring about other people. You will be paying attention to the larger consciousness system. You will be interpreting and creating metaphors for yourself that, that uh, will be creating and, and honing your tools, what tools work best for you. What you're doing, the inactive ingredient is your intent. Okay, now it's your metaphor that you can see blocks however you see them. You may see them as blocks, you know, big blacks you know, things, or you may see them as boxes, or you may see them as something that interrupts, or you may see them in all sorts of ways. That's your metaphor for it. And the metaphor is irrelevant. It doesn't matter really how you see them or what you see. It's the metaphor that you are using to uh, describe these issues or problems that people have, and you're describing them as a block. Well, you could be describing them as a you know, uh, um, no, I don't know, some other thing, uh, interference from, uh, you know, dark angels or, uh, you know, other things. The elf escaped out of World of Warcraft and is now hurting your friends. You can visualize it any way you want, and you can use metaphors of any sort you want. Use the ones that you can work with. So don't get trapped into the idea of what you see is what is there. What you see are the metaphors that you're giving something, and what you're doing is you're having an intent to accomplish something, creating tools with metaphors and using them, and that's a good thing to do. Practice it, and you'll get better at it. Keep practicing, and you'll get even better at it. You can branch out into other things. Realize you can make other kinds of tools. All of this is good exercise and will help you grow up. It will help you keep your... Your focus tight. Uh, it will give you um, some. Uh, I guess I, I will use the word control. It's not control necessarily in the in the sense that you're making something be that way, but you are. It will give you uh, an ability. Let's put it this way: to keep the noise out of your mind, uh, to keep a, a clear focus on the thoughts that you want to have, so your intent is focused. So it's all a good thing to do. Work at it. Uh, make sure you don't tread on anybody else's free will. Don't do things to people that uh, aren't helpful to them, that they don't want done. So be a little careful about that. But in the beginning, even that isn't too much of a problem. So yeah, go, go experiment and uh, apply what you learn more broadly as you go. Let this be a beginning of something bigger rather than just uh, learning how to do one thing, which is removing blocks. It'll start out that way, but you can turn it into something a lot more valuable. Okay. Oliver is going to ask the last question that comes from an MBT Forum member, Hadmi. Actually, Greg, right? 
Greg wanted to do that, right? Oh yeah. All right, had me. I think I hope I uh, do you right here. Um, what I from what I can understand of his long question, what he's getting at is the idea that instead of uh, let's say you have a hundred people in the world. And so each, you just have a hundred free will people interacting. He's proposing this alternate version where then you would have 100 different simulations or worlds and you have one for each person. And then when people, so that way, when people interact with what they perceive as other people, they're just getting kind of the data from that person, but not their direct free will unit. And in this way, all of the other people are protect any, any person is protected from the bad choices of another and that's that's is what uh, this individual is proposing in his question. So I guess he wants to know what you think of that. Okay, uh, certainly that's a possibility. You know, it's a logical possibility. Uh, it doesn't seem to me to be too practical, in the sense that now you have to create a universe for everybody. So now, before the computer had one universe with seven and a half billion people in it and so many other trillion other critters and that was it and they all interacted. Now you have to have a universe for every critter, every person, every whatever. That's asking a little much as far as you know computer use and so on. It's not as efficient or as effective as putting them all in one system. So I'd say that it uses a lot more resources but doesn't give you a whole lot for it. Now what you get out of the interaction of free will person with free will person is you get a lot of novelty. In other words, it's um, it's what I call uh, social Brownian motion. Brownian motion is, is motion when you look at the particles of a gas and you notice that these particles are just bouncing around all over. Where any particle is at any particular time is just random because they're all knocking and banging into each other and that's the reason why if you put a little bit of smoke, say, in the corner of a box, and then you seal the box up, very quickly that smoke distributes itself evenly throughout the whole box. That's because all those little smoke particles are banging into each other, banging into the molecules of air and other gases, and all those little bangs and bumps are random. So it very quickly just distributes everything across the whole volume. The smoke doesn't just stay in a little pile down in, down in one corner. Well, that's, this, that's what's called Brownian motion. It's the motion of particles that is random they, because they interact with other particles in random ways. And it's a chain. So this particle bumps you to the right, which then makes you interact with some particle that was the right, which then makes you interact with some other particle, and it just goes on and on and on through this causal chain that turns out to be uh, uh, so complex that it's, that it's random. All right, now, in our reality, we have what I call social Brownian motion. We interact with other people. and They have free will, and we have free will. And what comes out of that interaction sends us off in some different direction. We're different because of that interaction. We change. We make choices because of that interaction. We make choices. Those choices change us. So then that sends us off in some other direction, and now we make more choices. We bump into other people, and our free wills interact because we make choices, they make choices, we react to their choices, they react to our choices, and that changes us, and now we go off. So that's what it is. We have all of these choices that are constantly being created and recreated for us because of all the interaction between free will entities. 
if you're just one entity and everything else is a is a computer player you're just the one the one entity that makes choices and everything else the computer does you put a huge burden now on this computer to keep coming up with novel things that you to react to and they have to do it in some kind of a sequence so now you you know do this now it has to come up with something else to challenge you with that's based on that having been done and something else so the computer now is doing an awful lot of work just trying to feed you useful lines of data and the computer is liable to have a bias it may feed you lines of data based on what it thinks maybe would be useful so it'll do this and that but what if what it thinks has a bias to it well now everybody's going to be in this situation where it's got something that's biased well when you get in the in the brownie in motion the social brownie in motion you've gotten rid of the bias everything is you just bump into the people you bump into and you get to control what kind of people you bump into you're bumping into a lot of people who really annoy you and you don't like them then you get to pick up and leave and go someplace else and bump into a whole different bunch of people so you become in control of your interaction set somewhat see now you can't pick all the people in your life but you certainly can uh, be friends with these and really not associate with those and you end up creating biases for yourself but they're yours and they're your choice it's not something else making these biases for you so it's all yours so it seems just much more efficient and effective and a much better learning space where we all have to deal with each other because remember it's not so much what happens as it is how you deal with it so if we're in this interactive soup where all kinds of stuff happens all right you know i'm driving down the street and somebody runs me off the side of the road well that's something that happens and i got to deal with it now if i was just the one the one free will person in the universe would the, would the computer decide to drive me off the side of the road maybe but look at all the other billions of things it could do it's just randomly selecting things to happen well you would have a very random world when well, we interact with each other there's continuity to it there's uh, causality to it so the reason that guy ran you off the road is he was just talking to his girlfriend and and you know she told him something he didn't like and he wasn't paying attention he pulled into your lane and ran you off the road well now you have a whole another story going on over here that interacted with you you see and created something so this mix of all of us having free will and interacting and doing things that make other people do things that make us do different things and so on it's just a super rich um unbiased set of interactions from which you can deal with it and dealing with it is where we grow up so i think that uh, though that's a logical possibility that each one of us could be in our own universe i think it's very unlikely because i think it takes way too much computer resources for almost no gain and the idea that well then you'd never actually have to do anything hateful to anybody else you just be hateful to the computer makes no difference you see somebody's hateful to you or you're hateful to somebody else you give them something to deal with and they give you something to deal with and out of that dealing with it are your choices to grow up and that's the way it is so it's not that we're you know that we shouldn't 
ever interact with anybody but ourselves or with the computer, that's pretty sterile. I think we uh, interact with each other and we get a much richer assortment of things to deal with because you're dealing with other people who are dealing with things, who are dealing with other people, and that gives us a lot of things to deal with that just come out of the blue that uh, affect us, and we just have to deal with them. And how do we deal with that person who just ran us off the road? We give them the finger and start to swear and, you know, um, wish them, uh, you know, that their car blows up, you know, in the next mile or something. Well, then that's an opportunity for us to, to do better. You know, we could deal with that in some better way. It's an opportunity. Everything that happens to you gives you an opportunity to grow up, whether it's good, bad, or indifferent. And uh, being in this big mix creates a huge random, it's not really random, but when you look at it from the bigger picture, you know, random stirring of the pot continually presenting us with new challenges to deal with. Couldn't be designed any better, I, I don't think. I think it's designed the way that it works best. Other ways could be designed. You know, we have the people who think there are many worlds. And in the many worlds, you know, basically it's like that. Everybody has their own universe. Not only their own universe, but an infinite number of their own universes. Every time you make a decision or make a choice, off goes another universe. Okay, there's the universe where you made that choice and the universe where you made all the other possible choices. So every possible choice you could make is a universe. And everybody's spawning off these, uh, you know, infinite numbers of universes. And while that's logically possible, it's not practically possible. How do you do that in a real simulation? Well, it's too hard. There's too much data, too much information, and it's not an efficient way to, you know, to to run the to run a a schoolhouse. It uh, it's a possibility. It's just not very probable because it's not very efficient. And why do I always like things to be efficient? Because this is an evolving system, and systems evolve to be efficient. If they're not efficient, they stop evolving. You know, they go away. Something else evolves. The thing that was doing these inefficient processes begins to go away, and the thing that's doing efficient processes begins to take over and grow. It's just the nature of evolution. So being that this is an evolving digital reality, it's doing things that are the most effective for the least amount of resources, because that's what evolution does. So that's why I keep bringing this efficiency thing up as a measure of, is it likely or not? Very inefficient, then I say it's very unlikely. So that would be my, my, my problem with that, uh, with that uh, idea, is that it's just not very efficient. Not that it couldn't be that way. So uh, on my scale of zero to one in probability, you know, I give that a, you know, a 10 to the minus fifth or something because it's just terribly inefficient. I give the, the many worlds kind of a 10 to the minus you know, 30 because that's 10 times, 100, a million times more ridiculous as far as its inefficiency goes. It's just very inefficient. Now, you might think that it's efficient for the whole process because you get to do everything, every possible thing you get to do. But that's not what it's about. It's about learning. It's about growing up. It's about what do you learn from the choices you make, not that you get to make every choice as possible. What have you learned from it? And learning has to be cumulative. You can't go out and make a million choices all in parallel 
they're not you're not learning from each other in order to learn to make the next choice better because of your last choice that you learned something from that's a serial process so in a schoolhouse you don't take a whole bunch of kids and put some of them in kindergarten and some of them you know in third grade and a few of them you put in college and some you put in graduate school and you say okay I'm gonna put you know a piece of myself in every school well that doesn't help because you can't do this you can't multiply until you've learned to add you know it just doesn't work learning is a serial process you got to learn a before you can learn B before you can learn C and so on so parallel processing isn't an official way uh, an efficient way of learning it's an efficient way for doing some things but learning from your mistakes and then doing it better next time is a serial process and that's what we're that's what we're doing here, and it makes a much better school. Okay, well, I guess that wraps up this session of the Fireside Chat, unless anyone has any other questions. Well, how did we do on our list of questions? Did we get most of them done this time? We got them all done. Yeah, good. Good. Right on the time, right on the clock, too. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Much too. We must be getting. We must be getting good at this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, thank you, guys. I appreciate uh, everybody who showed up and uh, a lot of good questions, a lot of interesting ones. Uh, I think these are really good. Uh, I get a lot of good feedback. I don't know if you guys go to YouTube and look at what people say when these come out or not, but. Uh, but what, what people say is that uh, they really like these fireside chats. They get a lot out of it because the questions that you ask, the same kind of questions that they want to ask, and uh, it, it works good for most people. So I thank all of you. Uh, this is Oliver's idea. It was a brilliant idea, Oliver. And yes. uh, now this is number 18. This is the 18th fireside chat. And uh, so we've got 18 <laughs> of them out there now that otherwise wouldn't exist if Oliver hadn't come up with this idea. But... It's working really well. Once a month seems to be about right. Maybe a little too much for the editor who has to, has to work these out. But, uh, anyway, it's a, it's a great forum. So I appreciate all of you coming. Uh, that's what makes it work is a lot of diverse questions. And those of you that put them in from the forum, keep putting them in from the forum. Because uh, that's, you know, it, it's the quality of the question that produces the quality of the answer. So all the, all the good questions that are really informative, things that people really want to know, just keep them coming. <laughs>